Welcome to the Hill of Roses, an independent policy movement and podcast for progress. Today on the program, we have Russ Sercione. He is running for Congress in New Jersey 6 against Frank Pallone. Welcome to the program, Russ. Thanks a lot, John. By the way, just the last name is Sercione. Sercione, okay. It's hard to pronounce. I always have to explain, uh, run, run it by everybody once or twice, so. <laughs> well, I appreciate the correction. I get that all the time with Munitz. You don't know how often I got Muniz, uh, especially when I was briefly running for Congress and the person who ran before me on the Republican side was John Muniz. So yeah, there was a lot of corrections that I needed to do as well. So thank you for that. So Russ, uh, do you mind letting my audience know a little bit more about yourself? What's your background as well as what was your inspiration for running for the New Jersey 6th Congressional District? Well, my inspiration comes from many sources, right? But uh, so I'm a dad. I'm 32 years old and my son's turning three in June. And, um, you know, when you have a kid, everything becomes about your, your child and their future. And the climate crisis right now really has become the greatest threat to my son's well-being. You know, mm. we have 10 short years to fix uh, our climate crisis and really clean up our world that we're living in now. So uh, the, the climate crisis, when the 2018 UN IPCC report came out, I was very, very, honestly, very afraid because if we don't go 100% renewable energy as soon as possible, then we might not ever be able to fix our, our climate for our next generations and even for ourselves. And um, so the Green New Deal resolution came out about a year later in February 2019, and I was really excited about it. And it's a plan that will actually do the things we have to do, create millions of jobs in this country and create a green economy. But uh, so our generation, really, you know, we're, 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 we're similar in age, right? You're how old are you? I'm 25. 25. Okay. So. I think we're both the millennial generation. Yeah, is that, that true? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so we're both. <laughs> so basically, um, it gave our generation and humanity a, a glimmer of hope. And uh, it turns out that my Democratic representative, who represents a shoreline district, you know, we, there's about, uh, I think there's about 10 miles of coastline in this district. Mm -hmm. And uh, he actually came out immediately against the Green New Deal, said that it was impossible, it was unfeasible. And at that moment, uh, he became one of the greatest threats to my son's future by not demanding what, what we need here. So that really made me decide to run. And, you know, over time, it's just become more apparent that our district needs a climate champion in office because um, since we have so many homes on on the water, we have a tourism industry that relies on our beaches. Uh, we have so much at stake in this election, and we need a Green New Deal in this country today. Um, and you know, a lot of the platforms of the Green New Deal would help us out with this current crisis. But uh, so, I decided to run because I, I, I need to protect my son's future. Our homes here, my home specifically, is projected to flood oh. every other week by 2035 by the Union of Concerned Scientists and Zillow. They both made that estimate. Uh, so the crisis is here. Our, our district is experiencing the disaster now. There are people in Sayreville and across the coastline, actually, that still are not in their homes from Hurricane Sandy. So we need a Green New Deal in this district. I decided to run to bring that to our district and really bring 
a true people's champion uh, to Congress for this district. Well, I think that's... And, a, yeah, go for it. Well, I, I was going to say, I think that's a great inspiration for running. I think it's very important, especially for New Jersey in general, to have someone that is focused on climate change. Because when you compare it to any other state, when we look from the beginning of the 20th century to today... New Jersey has had the highest rise in temperatures of any state in our union. It was a two degrees Celsius change. And as someone who also lives in a coastal city in Hoboken, New Jersey, uh, I know for a fact that we are not prepared in terms of the rising sea levels that are going to come for us. So I really think that is a great inspiration. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of people see this threat as this very far off challenge, this far off threat, when we're dealing with, as you know, in our current events, so many very immediate challenges, coronavirus being one of the biggest ones in the news currently. I I'm curious, how do you try and balance those things of dealing with these problems that people perceive as far off challenges compared to those kitchen table issues of them struggling day by day? How do you try and sell them that they need to prioritize climate change higher? So all of our crises are really interrelated, right? Uh, so the coronavirus, you're right, is a challenging uh, scenario right now. We're in a national emergency dealing with a pandemic, but it really uh, reveals it reveals all the our underlying weaknesses. Mm. Uh, we're unprepared for uh, large scale crises, and we can deal with the coronavirus in many different ways. We're seeing massive unemployment. We're seeing uh, there's some projections of 30% unemployment due to the coronavirus. And uh, I think one of the remedies to that is to provide a federal jobs guarantee. So the federal, a federal jobs guarantee will immediately, we could train people to do the work that we need to do now. So we need to train new people in healthcare. We need to train people in sanitization of public spaces. Uh, we even need help getting health care, uh, um, home care services to people here. And um, a federal jobs guarantee can provide these good government jobs in our communities because the private sector right now cannot maintain uh, a job for everyone. As we're seeing very quickly, we're seeing businesses shutter their doors. You know, we're not even allowed to go into any retail stores that are essentially not grocery stores or pharmacy stores. So um, a federal jobs guarantee would help us deal with this coronavirus situation right now, but we could also start training for um, renewable energy jobs and the careers of the future. So because a central piece of the Green New Deal is a federal jobs guarantee, because we have a lot of good work to do in our communities. We have to go 100% renewable energy. We have to build windmill farms, solar panel farms, battery storage farms. And a federal jobs guarantee will allow us to start doing that now. So it's really important that not only we're dealing with this immediate crisis, but we can we can really springboard onto uh, addressing our long-term crises as well. Because we we don't want to deal with uh, national emergencies as they occur. We want to be prepared for them so we have everything up and running in advance. And we should be efficient and effective with our prepared strategies and also with the way that we deal with crises as they occur.
I think that's very true. I think a lot of the times we have to embrace the philosophy that every crisis is really an opportunity for reorganizing ourselves towards sustainability. Mm -hmm. Because I do think you're right. It does make us realize our values. And I, I do have some challenges with a, a federal jobs guarantee because I completely agree with the types of jobs you want to go forward with. I think a jobs program for all of those areas makes common sense. I do have some certain questions regarding how you actually take these people who've lost those jobs and be able to train them up so that they can be working in those jobs so quickly. And I do have some concerns about just the general administration, but I wanted to expand more onto the subject of coronavirus. And I know this is just only one facet of what you would see as a way to handle this crisis. What are some other things that you think could potentially uh, be as part of this overall solution to handle this specific crisis? So we should be uh, we should be mobilizing our production capacities here in the United States, and uh, ask asking uh, corporations to switch their plants over to producing, you know, personal protective equipment that nurses need in mm -hmm. hospitals. We uh, we have a shortage of masks even for nurses. You know, my my future my sister in law is a nurse, and she's told me you know they have to recycle the, the masks they're supposed to use these masks for an entire week wow. but these masks get dirty the first time they use them so the nurses are dealing with with contaminated masks for an entire week that winds up getting the nurses sick or subjecting them to increased risks uh, so we have to start manufacturing the per personal protective equipment that we need so not only masks but also the respirators that anyone who gets coronavirus really need essentially needs a respirator really quickly so, um, and we're, and we don't have enough of them so that we have to produce those. We should also be mobilizing the national guard and the, and the army corps of engineers to be constructing either temporary or permanent medical facilities as soon as possible in highly dense, densely populated areas. So I know New York is starting to mobilize their national mm -hmm. guard to do so. Uh, and we even saw, um, we saw in, in actually China, they, they constructed huge hospitals within weeks. We have to follow those examples and do those things and really start um, producing what we need to deal with this crisis immediately. And there's a ton, there's a ton of other uh, policy positions that I've actually drafted over the past week and, and I've, I've released, I'm releasing the full platform tonight, um, but there, there's a bunch of other things that we need to do like uh, we have to require our federal government to immediately declare an emergency mm. in scenarios like this. So like we saw the Trump administration and with the Senate, they knew about the severity of coronavirus in January. Meanwhile, it wasn't until the end of February where we had 15 reported cases in the United States. We lost out on an entire month of preparedness and preparing for this crisis because our federal government just did not disclose it to the American people because they were afraid of the blowback. So we have to specifically legislate and mandate uh, that these kinds of national security threats are immediately told to people. So, you know, if we started practicing social distancing a month earlier, we wouldn't have be ranked the third uh, most um, contaminated country in the world right now. Well, we, would, we would have been prepared. We would have been sanitizing, clean, washing our hands and cleaning our public spaces a lot earlier. So there's tons of things that we have to do. Uh, and let's, let's get into more detail. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more of how you'd actually force them to go through with that. Would it be something like a criminal penalty if it was discovered later on that they didn't disclose it early enough? How do you actually force them to declare that emergency? Uh, that's probably a good idea to make it a criminal penalty. 
Um, there's tons, there's lots of ways, uh, basically, you know, administrative law, uh, even the federal agencies, they have to abide by it. Mm-hmm. So their employees would have to abide by, abide by it. We have to take out the discretion factor of, of, of declaring these emergencies because our, so the, the presidential administration, the Senate, they, they largely have like discretionary, uh, discretionary, um, capacities for when they tell people about these things. We should really look towards like automation of these things. Mm. So once we once we become aware of the problem, it should be automatically disclosed to people within five days, and we should take the necessary steps because it's not only the federal government does it. You know, if they learn about something first, they have to get the word out to the states because the states take longer to mobilize, and also um, they're in charge of really protecting the general welfare of of our people here. So we have to make the process automatic. I mean, I, honestly, the criminal penalties, they probably wouldn't even be prosecuted anyway by the Department of yeah. Justice. So, I mean, I'm not sure if, if we should go that route, but it's something I'm willing to consider for sure. Yeah, and we're definitely going to see if that plays out with a few that did go even further and tried to financially gain off of that by violating the Stock Act. Uh, there was, I think, was it three or four senators that had done that? I, I'd be curious in regard to this kind of threshold in automating it, how do you determine what that threshold is? What types of crises need to have that level of discretion out? Because there is, in certain cases, uh, certain confidential information that is supposed to be kept within those bodies because potentially could have damage if it's released transparently to the public. What types of crises do you imagine need to be disclosed to the public immediately? So definitely in public health areas. I think that's one of the areas. So in cases where there's a a new form of illness that's contagious and that there's no real cure or remedy for, that has to be immediately mandated. Uh, I think public health crises should take priority because uh, people deserve to know uh, the things that affect their health, you know, and those are really the first rights laid out in the Declaration of Independence, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, you know, our federal government is supposed to be ensuring our general welfare, our general well-being. So uh, we have these, we have constitutionally uh, these rights guaranteed to us, yet there's really little that, um, there's really a small amount of legislation that requires our government to do, uh, to act on these issues. So uh, I guess we could, we could create, we can create standards like national health emergencies, um, I think is a good start. And then we we can do things like, um, I guess, defense, uh, defense issues like uh, if there, I, I know. Remember in Hawaii a few years ago, yeah. where there was that massive text message that came out when you know warning of an impending missile strike. Mm-hmm. Like we should have things like 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 that everywhere throughout our nation. Um, there, I honestly think that we have to have a larger discussion of these issues as soon as possible. I think that's a very fair threshold to be determining it. Once it impacts American safety, whether it's through health or through military potential means, I do think those are things that should be disclosed to the public. I'm curious, how have you been reacting to how Congress has actually been handling this crisis so far? Uh, have you had certain reactions to Democrats or Republicans alike? How, how have you judged that? They're, have they been doing a good job in your opinion? Uh, to be honest, I think our state governments have taken the lead here. And I'm really, I'm really proud of Governor Murphy. I think he's yeah. doing a great job for New Jersey. Uh, so we have the um, we have the stay at home provisions. We have moratoriums on evictions. 
Our state governments are really be showing themselves to be the true leaders here. Uh, I think the federal government, uh, the federal government has been very swift to protect millions of their own dollars. Yeah. Uh, the federal government has been very swift to give trillions of dollars in Wall Street bailouts. Uh, I just, I just can't understand how uh, the first thing on, on congressional and presidential authorities is uh, to throw money at markets. We need an immediate, uh, we need immediate bills to protect people here, uh, our working people and our families here of all, of all types. We need an economic stimulus package for the 99%. Uh, we need we need things like a universal basic income right now, uh, because like I said, there's mass unemployment going on. Lots of people are losing their jobs. Uh, we we need a national moratorium on uh, evictions for uh, foreclosures. Um, you know, even rent payments. To be honest, uh, because our our government right now in times of crises has the capacity to directly put money into the hands of people who need it the most. You know, you know half, half of Americans don't have a savings of more than $400. Yeah. Uh, you know, almost, every, almost everyone's living paycheck to paycheck. So we need a program that is pro-working people. We need, and we also definitely need to be investing in our healthcare system more. Yeah. So I'm I'm not very pleased with our federal government's response. Of course, it, we have partisan gridlock in the the Senate and the House, and it's just really honestly, it's really frustrating because our government is supposed to be working for the people quickly. We deserve representatives that are accountable to, to the people here, and we just don't really have that right now. Hmm. So I'd be curious, how would you approach that? Let's say you were elected, you beat Frank Pallone. How do you go about trying to get? some working relationships together to get something passed. What would be your general strategy for trying to get this people forward agenda? So I think that I would, I would be one of the most um, accessible and, and really open and accountable elected representative in the country. So I, I would plan on making all of our, um, all, all of our meetings public to the, the greatest extent possible. So really I want to have other representatives on um, you know, on, bl on blast essentially, who are refusing to negotiate for people. We need to have our representatives um, accountable to the public. So the first thing really is obviously we work with the progressives that we have and we, and we, get, the, we get the votes. We work on getting the votes. This is honestly a very simple nonpartisan issue. We have to get to work for the people and we have to make that case to everybody and any, honestly, anyone who refuses to take action against the people, we have to make sure that everybody in their district knows about it. We have to make sure that everybody in our country knows about it. You know, So it would be important to work with the media as well and get that message out to the greatest extent possible. And um, I think we also have to focus on the things that we can change. So we, have, we would have to focus on uh, actually something that we just started up is a Middlesex County Mutual Aid Network, and we're trying to get volunteers to do shopping for people who need it. We're trying to get um, anyone who needs help to reach out to our state government and also uh, see if we can have a volunteer, get them some immediate delivery of groceries. So we have to really build our communities as well and organize our communities really well. So there's, it's a multifaceted approach, but uh, we, we honestly, we have to get to work.
I, I agree with that approach. I really think that you can't just try and focus solely on the internal side of just working within Congress. Part of the job as a leader is also being within your communities and being there to hear what they actually need rather than you just saying, I think I have the answer, actually hearing what their concerns are and what issues they're facing and helping mobilize those communities. So I'm glad that you have that approach. Is there anything in your life where you've had a crisis management situation where you had to be making quick decisions? How, how have you tried to handle that when there's a race against the clock, essentially? How do you try and juggle all these different things? Well, it's really about just prioritizing other people first. Um, you know, as long as my, my, my needs are met, that unlocks my potential to help organize. And yeah, I, I've dealt with a, a few different crises um, so basically, basically every, every single time that, uh, you're in housing court is a crisis, <laughs> um, because somebody, somebody's, um, somebody's livelihood, somebody's home is on the line. And, uh, so I've actually worked with, uh, pro bono foreclosure defense, uh, and I've defended people who are in court, uh, who maybe have missed a mortgage payment or two and are under threat of being foreclosed upon. So a lot of times in the pro bono cases, you get noticed like a week in advance about the court case and the problems and the issues. And it, it becomes basically uh, just prioritizing what you can get done as soon as possible to delay the eviction uh, so that someone can get back on their feet, find a new job, uh, get those get those payments out, maybe refinance. So even in, even in like scenarios like in housing court where um, – you know, I, I've I've been on both sides of, of housing court, but I prefer being on the um, you know the, the people, the side of the people. So basically, in um, in a foreclosure action, if you have a court, if an, a tenant has a court date, uh, on that court date, you have the chance to make your last case of why we should delay the foreclosure or why we should not be foreclosed on at all. And cases come in with short notice that just require a review of lots of documents and um, lots, lots of paperwork, a client interview. And so what you, ha what you have to do is just find the people that could help you and delegate tasks and just do anything that you can just to get into court, make the best case for, uh, for the person and um, keep them in their home. So, yeah, there, I've come up with plenty of crisis scenarios like this, uh, but this is nothing, actually nothing like this in my entire life, you know, um, but, you know, I guess really what we, what we have to do is just remember that we are communities here. Like right now I'm in, I'm in Sayreville. I live in Old Bridge. We, we have communities here and we all have things to offer other people. And the things that we have to offer, somebody else probably needs. So it's important to connect with those people. Yeah, I think that's a really important lesson is really we can't do it all of ourselves. When we're in a crisis, we need other people to be able to help up help us and one of the main jobs of a representative is really being that manager of people to help try and guide the resources to where they need to go. I, I'm curious, the last thing I really wanted to talk about before we get into the UBI that you had mentioned before is how has the coronavirus really impacted your campaign? How have you managed your team during this crisis to try and readjust to these new times? Well, John, it's honestly, it's been a little bit of a, a little bit of a, um, how do I say this? It's a, for the first few days, it kind of shocked our team and uh, we didn't know how to deal with it because obviously our plan has been to 
extensively knock on doors in our district. You know, mm-hmm. the, the weekend before the coronavirus hit, we had knocked on, uh, I think, about 500 doors. And the weekend that uh, our, we had to cancel all of our field operations for now, like our in-person field operations, we can't knock on doors right now. We just don't know what the, we don't know what the threat level is. We don't want to be spreading it. We can't. You can't really practice safely social distancing mm-hmm. while you're canvassing. Uh, so we put a pause on that, and everything's really switched to geared towards online organizing and online activism. And I'm really grateful for my team because we have a team of uh, of many volunteers, about 20 volunteers who have given time to uh, given time to our online operations. So it consists of uh, graphic design work, um, a lot of phone calls, and text banking right now. Yeah. And we're, we're shifting to online activism as best as we can. And honestly, it's a real big learning curve because for so long we've been um, we've been focused on the in-person connections, the networking, the real relationship building in real life. But all that has con- kind of uh, had to take a backseat to now our online activism. And it's it's kind of cool because you can create good relationships uh, via Zoom, via Skype, yeah. via you know, via all of our social media networking, but it's kind of a new, a new way of thinking. But um, I, you know what, you know, it's really great though. I think that uh, the concept of remote work is really now coming into full, full mainstream. I think that uh, after, after we get out of the coronavirus, we're going to see a lot more jobs being <laughs> fully telecommuting yeah. and, and fully remote. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting on how we're dealing, dealing with that on a national scale as well. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on the the silver linings of handling this crisis. There's been a lot of fundamental truths that have been exposed of not just the nature of mobile work, but certain jobs have become essential in people's mind, while others aren't. And a lot of those essential jobs are being vastly undercompensated. So I think you're you're right that this has done a lot of exposure. And I really do hope that the digital approach can still reach that final goal point because I know, unfortunately, demographically, a lot of that digital presence is a lot of the younger generation. Uh, have you had a certain demographic that's encompassed your district? Is it a relatively young area? What's your district like? So we have four colleges in this district, actually. We have Rutgers, Monmouth, Middlesex, and Brookdale. And um, we... We, we do have a great youth demographic here. Uh, and ge- and generally, generally speaking, everybody agrees on the main policy platforms of our positions. So the Green New Deal polls above 80% all of the policy platforms. Medicare for All actually polls above the 60s. Uh, and, um, you know, ending corruption with both parties is like the high 80s, 90s. So um, no matter what the demographic is, we agree on those three big policy issues. Um, a lot, the, about 60% of this district owns a home, and the high property taxes are very concerning for people yeah. here in New Jersey. You know, in New Jersey, on average, we pay about 9k a year. Uh, in our district, uh, some parts of the shoreline are in, are in significantly higher, like 24,000 a year. So, property lowering property taxes is a huge, huge issue. Uh, but, I mean, generally speaking, we have a very, we have a very progressive district, ideologically speaking. Well, that's great. I I hope that ends up working out. Uh, I think we should take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll be able to discuss the UBI platform as well as some of your methods of handling this corruption problem. So Rosebud, we'll be right back to talk with Russ.